Welcome to Best Served, a podcast recognizing unsung hospitality heroes. Join Chef Jensen Cummings as he chops it up with industry leaders about the humans who've impacted their lives and careers. From childhood guides, to ass-kicking mentors, to the team members in the trenches that make it all happen. Help us celebrate these rock stars by sharing our show and nominating your own unsung hospitality heroes. Connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Now here is your host. What's up, everybody? Jensen Cummings here. Thank you for tuning in. Today I'm talking with Curtis Bell, a private chef and small business owner of Miso Hots in Denver, Colorado. And we talk about lemonade stands. We talk about cooking for Von Miller. And we talk about $80 a bottle hot sauce. Enjoy the show. So growing up in Colorado, I mean, obviously you have that kind of tie to nature and it was a different time. So we were, you don't see kids playing in the woods and stuff like they used to, but we were always outside playing sports and, uh, you know, playing football on the field in our neighborhood or building forts in the woods and digging holes and playing in the snow in the winter, building snow, like giant snow forts out of the piles that they build up. I mean, as a kid also, I've, I've always been curious about food. Oddly, most of my childhood memories tie back to food in some way or another. Um, I mean, all the way back to my, my oldest memories, two, three, four years old. And there's pictures of me on a stool stirring mac and cheese. And my parents finding me when I was three sitting on the, the counter in the middle of the night making scrambled eggs in the microwave, which I don't remember, but uh, just pretty weird, random stuff that I, I was always tied to food somehow. Who was cooking the mac and cheese that you were stirring up? Usually my dad, uh, my stepmom too. She cooked a lot. Um, that was my, my first stepmom. Um, but generally there was always somebody cooking at home. My dad was a really good cook though. And, and a lot of my motivation to cook came from him, especially during the, the there was a phase of my childhood where he uh, was a single father. So, and it was just him and I, my brother and sister are a lot older and they were out of the house. So he'd cook really cool dinners and, and, started seeing my interest in food and gave me the opportunity, you know, got me the, the Emerald Lagasse kids cookbook. I can't remember the exact name of it, but my first cookbook still have it. And so I'd pick a recipe out of there, like applesauce and random little things like that. And I, I'd, I'd make a little thing and he'd make some stuff too. Connect the dots for us. I'm very interested when I hear you talking about these dinners that your dad's doing, thinking of you being a private chef, now going into other people's home and trying to create, a food memory and experience or just nourishing the family. Maybe connect dots there for us because that might be interesting where you were inspired very early to have those moments of cooking in the home. Yeah, maybe that's, I think you get, you have a good point there. So as a kid growing up with meals in the home, also eating out and having a lot of fine dining experiences because well, my dad was lucky and had a pretty good expense account with his business and um, maybe I shouldn't say that because he still has that job but I would come with him and his clients to have dinner so I had the opportunity to see fine dining but also eat well at home because my dad cooked a lot and there was even a period of time where he thought about opening a restaurant then fast forward and once I started cooking professionally I seemed to gravitate towards cooking in people's homes. Uh, when I was in culinary school, I, I was at the, the Culinary Institute of America in New York, and a buddy of mine got me a gig where we would go down to the city, and there's a restaurant called Plates in Larchmont, New York. And that guy catered to 
unbelievably wealthy people and we would go into their house and and do these parties and that kind of that sparked that like oh okay so i can connect this love for cooking into bringing it into people's homes and the the beautiful thing about that is as opposed to a restaurant where you don't always see your guests reaction to your food and experience it with them this i found to be the bridge of that gap of experiencing food with the people seeing how they are enjoying it and really getting that gratification out of it versus just slaving away building plates and they disappear and you never see your temporary little piece of artwork ever again or the you know the enjoyment of that artwork so that's really where you know my my joy for it came and i didn't expect or plan to become a private chef or personal chef but it just kind of happened i gravitated towards it and i don't know call it the universe but it came to me and it's continued over the last decade and just really keeps going it's it's been quite the fortunate experience to get the get into this side of the industry I just had this snapshot visual of like one of the families you're cooking with and their young kid next to you stirring mac and cheese, a little side by side of you as a kid stirring mac and cheese, this kid. I, I like that. I like when we were connecting our own treasured memories to creating them for others. So I can really, really appreciate that. Because I've had that happen with clients where their kids come up and I that great? And help me out because they get really intrigued by it. So yeah, it's, I hadn't really put pieced those dots together myself. This is hard hitting journalism over here, you know. <laughs> I love I'm, it. Uh, connecting all the chef dots for sure. Yeah, Getting all the all the feels going. I think it's important because point you made where you're just building these plates and you're like in this fucking grind, and we love that energy for sure. Sometimes you forget like there's there's humans on all sides of that equation, so I think it's important to remember yeah. why we get into what we do. I always felt like there was something missing when I was in restaurants. Like I was just being held back. Like it wasn't really full to the potential. And, you know, I actually worked with a career coach last year because I was feeling a little stuck. I didn't know what it was that gives me that feeling of fulfillment. And it really is that a lot of it is that aspect of bringing joy to people and being able to see what I've created be experienced. So, I mean, there's a piece of attention to that, that you enjoy that attention and that gratification that they give you of saying thanks and, and enjoying it. But just to see it is, is very fulfilling. Makes a lot of sense to me. All right. Speaking of yeah. restaurants, 14 years old, you're pigging out barbecue as a dishwasher. Yeah. Young, in it. Talk about why you ended up getting into a restaurant. Was it dad says, get your ass out there, get a summer job? Did you want to get into restaurants? Give us that uh, genesis of getting into the restaurant industry. So, man, I was, I was hungry for it from the start. I told my dad I wanted to be a chef when I was 10. And he, you know, he thought it was like, you know, saying you want to be a cop or a, or a fireman when you're a kid. Just a little bit of a dream. But we would go out to this restaurant called the Trinity Grill. And uh, we would sit there every day or, well, at least once or twice a week and the chef would come out and chat with me and I realized like, man, this, this is a, a job. I can have this as a career. And so from 10 years old forward, I just really set my eyes on becoming a chef. Um, first day of high school, I walked into my, the, the, the cooking classes and asked the teacher how I get scholarships to culinary school. And they were like, whoa, easy. It's your first day. Like, calm down. You got four years to figure this out. But with that, I did competitions. And when I was 13, 
actually my first kitchen I ever stepped in was the fort um, to do like an interview of chefs for a school project. And then I also did a day at uh, the Palm. But so th those were both when I was 13. So I was, I was getting myself in there because I couldn't legally work in a kitchen yet. So the day I was 14, I went to the counselor's office at my high school, got a worker's permit and took a job that I'd been offered before that because I interacted with this restaurant. It was near my high school. And they were like, you know, once you get your permit, come in, we'll give you a job. And sure enough, right, right as I turned 14, I came in and they threw an apron at me and told me to start, make, start cleaning dishes, which wasn't ideally exactly what I was thinking, but I didn't care. I was in a kitchen. I was around food. I loved it. So it, it just, it just, you know, the career spiraled from there. You were going to iconic places, the Palm, the Fort, Trinity Grill. So you weren't messing around at uh, 10, 11, 12, 13 years old. I, my I like hearing that. Me. Yeah, my, my dad knew. I mean, yeah, I grew up going to, to great places. I mean, we even spent time after we'd, we'd eat dinner at the Trinity Grill with my dad and his buddies. And then we would go across the street to Churchill's or, well, Ship's Tavern. Sometimes we'd eat there and then go into Churchill's. But Churchill's was a place that they would go and have those after dinner drinks and smoke a cigar. And yeah, I'm a little kid, so I either get like a chocolate cigar or they'd bring out some really nice dessert for me while my dad and his friends just you know get wasted and, and laugh about jokes that i shouldn't be hearing and stuff like that but but it was i yeah i was really fortunate to experience that stuff and see that side of of the industry at such a young age that that really just fueled the passion like man this is this is really beautiful cool stuff so it was a clear path to cooking and then you talk a little bit about just being a purebred born entrepreneur always hustling always into some little business starting all kinds of ventures talk about that a little bit because then i want to kind of segue why you start a business generally and then why you start a business like miso hot oh interesting yeah cool i like that so yeah entrepreneurship is something that it was just a bug inside of me from the start uh, i mean when i was little it was lemonade stands shoveling snow and uh, mowing lawns, whatever, you know, whatever I could do, I would hustle my parents to let me do chores for money because I just wanted that money to go like, you know, buy Taco Bell and candy or whatever at the time. But because I grew up across the street from a Taco Bell, but not that I just, I'm a freak for Taco Bell, every chef's guilty pleasure. Anyways. Uh, so when I was 13, actually my dad being a cigar smoker, like I talked about at Churchill's, there's this glue that uh, would, uh, if the outer leaf on a cigar cracks, it doesn't pull. So there was a glue that's basically pectin based and it, that company went out of business. So my dad and I tried to recreate it. And he said, you know, okay, well, we've figured it out. Him and I figured out the, the formula using liquid pectin, which is similar to what they were using, like a pectin or glycerin based type glue. Um, and he was like, well, I, I want you to see what it is to start a business because I'd always been pushing myself in that arena just the little kid way but he wanted to, me to see a little bit more of the adult way on how to form a business so we made a logo and i got little tiny nail polish bottles and this stuff is still sold in santa fe and at uh, tobacco leaf and lakewood here in colorado and i mean that's from when i was thir 12 13 years old and then ever since that you know i got out of college and i had friends that were also entrepreneurial and in 2010 we started loto magazine which failed quickly because it just we didn't have money to sustain a print business and some of us were it wasn't really the forte of some of the people that we were working with but i got to write about food i got to do a lot of really cool stuff i think that's actually where i met you jensen was when you were with with troy 
because I know you and I worked with Kevin around the same time, but I don't know that I actually met you when you were working with Kevin. Yeah, I think we were ships in the night, but I remember the name for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but I, I remember seeing you when you were doing uh, programs with Troy when I came in to interview him for Lotto Magazine. But so there was that, and then there's been different, you know, food businesses, catering company that I've, I've done, just all kinds of things that I've been working towards finding what, what works for me. And, and generally at the time, it's, I always have a list of ideas of businesses. And as an entrepreneur, you try whatever seems like the best idea at the time. As you go along and you fail or have certain levels of success, you hone in on what you're good at and what works for you. And so as you were, you know, as we were talking about miso hot, that came out of, out of nowhere. Seriously, I, I created the recipe for the first time for a party I catered 13 months ago. And now it's a business and we've, we just pulled in, we, we hit 10 grand and we launched three months ago. So, I mean, it's moving and it's just really crazy, but I think it's, it's something I've found that I, uh, I, all of the details of starting a food product business fit my skill sets and what I enjoy too. Give us a couple tidbits of that because a lot of people listening are young up and comers and they have a family recipe or some passion inside them that's connected to something with food. It's give them a couple things. Do yeah. this. Don't ever fucking do this. Yeah, a, a couple things. Cause I think even just getting a little bit tactical for a couple seconds might right. be valuable. Well, you know, I mean, I honestly, I had never started a food product business. So I leaned on the people I know, like uh, I was introduced to Zach Johnson with the spice guy and had some help from Aaron Wagner with elevation ketchup. Some of the things are just, you know, if you have a recipe you believe in, start looking at how to scale it. Scaling is the hardest part. Yeah, sure. You know, I was roasting peppers and blending it with miso in a food processor at home. But then how do you take that one quart batch and turn it into 75 gallons? That's that scalability is a big problem. And then what about when it's 75 gallons and you're going through those batches so quickly that you need to be making 750 gallons of it? You need to Think of, uh, you know, look for co-packers, people who are in the business, ask people, just ask questions of anybody you know that is in the industry. And if you don't know anybody, talk to people that might know somebody in the industry and that will push you forward and you'll learn from their mistakes so you don't have to make them. That's something that I've leaned on. And I mean, mistakes that I've made have been in the development, but as development goes with a recipe to commercialize it, you're going to have to change certain ingredients to make it shelf stable, make it last longer, or, um, you know, make it emulsified appropriately, things like that. So you're going to make this thing 30 to 50 times if, and that's on the low end, if you're lucky, I, I fortunately had a pretty good solid thing to work with at the beginning, be patient with it because it's never easy. And anybody you talk to will say it's never easy to start a food product based business and just get it off the ground and then keep it going. So, I mean, my, my advice is, is be patient and grind hard, grind fast. I mean, push it, but make sure you're doing it right. The worst thing you can do is try to rush it onto the scene and not be ready. And I mean, even I've been, like I've said, I'm moving fast, but I made sure that I've ticked all the boxes on what's required for the FDA, um, for the state, for taxes, um, I mean, I even had trademark applications applied before I released the product to the public. So it's 
there's a lot to it. There's a million pieces and it's a big list and it can get overwhelming. But once you get over that hump of the development, then you can start focusing on the business. Even then it's still insane and crazy and difficult. Seeing people enjoy your product in the end, that makes it all worth it. I tell people from my experience, when we took brewed food from straight food lab and innovation and then spun off a completely separate business that was packaged food products, really I wanted to understand that arena. And it was interesting to me. There's two things then that I learned from it. One is understanding the regulation because we were doing such cutting edge, innovative things with fermentation. We always ran into roadblocks with ability to get our process certified. So that's something I tell people. If you end up with very complicated processes, and that's something to be very aware of is regulation. Uh, the other is to understand who your market is. When we're chefs and we start a product, it was interesting trying to create a product that spoke to chefs because that's who we were, and also to retail. A lot of times those are different. One of the challenges that we had, one of the failures that we had was trying to think that we could create a product that really spoke to both. And we recognized that you have to pick your audience and eventually you can create line extensions. That's some of the tactical stuff. We got very tactical at a moment here. And, and let's, let's spin that right into one of our best served on ice games. I'm such a research hound that I love to just go down a rabbit hole. And so we like to play just the facts game, hot sauce edition. I was just looking into your product a little bit and I was like, God, fucking hot sauce and chili peppers <laughs> are super interesting, man. And, right. and I, I felt like I am kind of a, geek when it comes to those things yet i knew very little about it and so i'm sure you had to do a lot of research because you mentioned it that it wasn't like this recipe had been in you since you were stirring mac and cheese no, it was I kind didn't. of a new thing so it wasn't like you were this hot sauce aficionado. you're like all right i gotta no. figure out what i know as a chef and go into an arena where it's very competitive a lot right. of companies in that space so let's uh let's geek out a little bit you want to play a little just the facts hot sauce edition game yeah, hit me with it. Let's see what uh what I know, because um it, it's funny that you ask ask all that you're gonna go into all this because yeah, before miso hot, I am a self admitted gringo to heat. Like I couldn't handle a whole lot of spice, but that's changed a little bit to this point. So let's see what I got. Right now, now the expectation is oh, Curtis Bell, he's he's a expert. Oh yeah, on, on yeah, hot sauce. Fucking peppers, but <laughs> yep. Uh huh. We're gonna we're gonna push you here a little bit. So the origin of chili peppers, I did not know this either. The origin of chili peppers. What continent are chili peppers originally from? South America, Asia, or Africa? I would guess South America. Correct. In what is kind of the area of Bolivia now? So okay. This was just fascinated yeah. me because to your product and to a lot of things that I'm passionate about having a Japanese background and, and, you know, being in California where mm -hmm. Asian side of spicy food was the thing that I was very right. familiar with as well as Mexican food. And right. so I think about that. And then I'm reading that it was Columbus who brought it over. And then there was Dutch traders that brought chilies to Korea, to China, to India. When I think of Korea or Szechuan food or Indian food, that's what I think about when I think about spicy food, right? Funny you the say fact that, that yeah, it wasn't from there, they were right. brought there by European traders is fascinating to me. I guess I think of like mole and things like that and how many different peppers are combined. Like in the, in the Asian culture, you, you'll see each culture has kind of its, 
it's pepper that they use, whether that's the Thai red or, you know, the Korean hot chili or like Chinese, with, which they use a lot of Sichuan peppercorn, which isn't even really a pepper. Um, but they all have specialized, whereas I think of like Central and South America and how there's like just a crazy amount and variety of peppers um, and markets for them. But yeah, I guess I hadn't thought deeply enough to like where the root might have been. Because yeah, even reaching to India, that's kind of crazy. I'm in my office too. And in my office, I have a world map right in front of me. So I'm looking at that and picturing how it traveled around the world. Pretty cool. So. I saw one of those maps where they showed the movement of, of all kinds of different products. And it's just fascinating to me how oh, we yeah. think about uh, how we contextualize the time when we talk about traditional food items. I think right. I'm very interested in things like that to somebody, I think of Masaharu Morimoto, where he's getting told that he's not a traditional Japanese chef, <laughs> yet what is traditional Japanese? Most of the traditional Japanese things are Chinese. And so, right. and then I think about chili peppers, now there's another ingredient that isn't quote unquote traditional. So it's just contextualizing time, which is, is why I think, yeah, and it's why I think who we're connecting the food to and why we're cooking this food is more important than what quote unquote is traditional. So that was really interesting to me, the origin of chili. So you're one for one, you nailed it. You're, you're holding cool. up. Good start. And, <laughs> all right, second question, Scoville units. What the yeah. fuck are Scoville units? Um, so to my understand, they are, I don't remember what, I, I honestly don't remember the scale on, and how they're measured. Um, but I do remember that it's, they were invented by, or they were developed by uh, Wilbur Scoville in the early 1900s. Um, but I don't remember exactly how it was that he measures them. So it's the level of capsaicin, the actual right. yeah. uh, agent, the chemical oh. in which spice comes from. Thank and you. so I think it's very interesting. The count of them, the higher the count, the higher the heat sure. is. Right, and, and that's the count of the particles that they did through a, a process of separating them or something to that effect, right? Yeah, that's way too scientific for me. I, I can barely count these numbers, but yes. It was interesting to me thinking about a poblano chili is like 1,200, a jalapeno is like 5,000, habanero 150,000, and then a Carolina Reaper, the hottest chili currently, 2.2 million Scoville units. Right. Yeah. Unbelievable. And we've gotten very obsessed with the hottest yeah. that something can be. And that's been very interesting watching hot sauce go right. from to your point of mole and, and just the balance, thinking about chili peppers as, as balance and heat to can we melt people's faces off? So I, I just came back from the Fiery Foods Festival in New Mexico this past weekend. Um, it, it's generally in the, the last weekend of February, first weekend of March each year. And they had products there that were, you know, you can take peppers, but you can also just extract pure capsaicin now and place that into your hot sauces and products. So people have products that are 3 million, 4 million Scoville units. And my buddy that was working with me ate a peanut, one peanut, that was 3 million Scoville units. It's the, people might have heard of it. It's called the death nut. And he thought, he was like, yeah, I can handle one. And he came right back across to our booth, 
crying and he was like, I can't breathe. I, I can't talk. I got to sit down. And he sat down like pouring water on his face. And I, I mean, he was down for the count for a good five, 10 minutes. It was funny for me because I know I would never do that, but also just to see that reaction was pretty shocking. Like, it's just crazy. I've had some hot sauces that a dab on the end of a toothpick almost made me hallucinate. It's crazy. People are crazy about it. There's a whole subculture, which I think is fascinating and not my thing, but I love that they have their thing. I think it's super great. Uh, I remember even being a kid and getting into pickled jalapeno, like the nacho jalapeno slice eating contests and being Uh a, you know, half white, half Japanese kid in Southern California and like beating the Mexicans and eating jalapenos. I thought that was hot. And then these people like eating chicken wings with 4 million, you're basically ingesting pepper spray. I mean, it's unbelievable. Yeah. And, and to me, like, I remember hearing about a friend that would eat Dave's insanity sauce, which I think was like 1.5 million. Maybe, Maybe it's more than that. I don't know exactly what, but he ended up getting an ulcer at the age of 21 from eating so much hot sauce. And I don't know, maybe that's just his weak stomach, a weak stomach or something, but if you're getting ulcers from the shit you're eating, like maybe you should take it easy. But there is that, that uh, rush of endorphins that's released. And it's, you know, it's the whole chasing the dragon thing. Like people love the heat. And so they keep looking for more of it because you want that high that it gives you. Like you said, it makes you almost hallucinate. And there, there's absolute truth to those feelings that it gives you. Personally, I have not experienced that. And I, I'm okay. I'm not, I'm not a, a masochist. I don't, I, <laughs> I don't feel like I need to do that to myself. We are gluttons for punishment. All right. Yeah. We talked entrepreneurial. We, we, we talked a little bit about sales. So let's talk about sales within the hot sauce industry. Cool. If you had to guess between these three figures of how much revenue is generated annually in the United States from hot sauce sales, would it be 500 million plus 1 billion plus or over $2 billion in sales? Ooh, that's a good one. I'm guessing it's definitely one of the the billion figures. Um, I'll just go high and say it's the 2 billion. Over 2 billion a year on hot sauce. I mean, I think about the number of units sold when you're talking about hot sauce being anywhere from, let's say, four to eight ninety nine, that is a lot of bottles of hot sauce. Yeah, well, and it's crazy. They're getting even even more expensive. I mean, for example, I mean, my product, a jar is retailing right now for ten dollars, um, which I know is on the high end, but it's it's very different and it's pretty dense, potent stuff. Um, but I, I was just in New York and I saw hot sauces are reaching closer to $20 at that fiery foods show. There's like collector edition ones that are $200 for a jar. Uh, the company truff, which they have the Instagram handle sauce at sauce. I don't know who, how much they paid for that handle, but they sell a jar in Neiman Marcus in New York for, I think $80. Um, and then their their typical normal jar is just on its own is just eighteen dollars, so it's crazy out there right now how much people are willing to pay for heat. That's the sauce. That's the truffle hot sauce, correct? Yeah, yeah, and it's in like a fancy looking jar with a almost like a 
kind of ge geo geometric type shaped lid. It's like a boutique hot sauce. Is I mean, I'm thinking about you know Louis Trey, or I'm thinking about uh, perfumes. Like I don't know. It's got it's gotten interesting. I, I think. What's totally. funny about it is whatever people are willing to pay, that is the market value of a product. That right. being said, whatever's in the bottle is always going to be difficult to have that value, but it doesn't matter because it, it's telling a story or creating some kind of prestige for yeah. the purchaser and owner. I, I'm, I'm fascinated by it. Right. I think I see both sides of it being vanity for vanity's sake or yeah. and i also see it being like look it's creating an opportunity for artists to be artists like that's what they can sell their art for totally it's cool and i mean even mine being at the ten dollar level which is on the on that higher end for me i'm i'm a small business and my cost of production per jar is a certain number and then i have to sell that to a wholesaler for a certain number and give them a large enough margin for them to put the shelf or put the product on a shelf for a certain price. So I think in New York, because of the added shipping for a case of product, I just got it into uh, the product into Calusians, which is a store in New York city that sells all kinds of stuff, but they're selling it, I believe for 1249. I don't know if that's exactly right, but I know that they're over the $10, but it's, it, this is simply just so that each of us at each level get our margins. Uh, I mean, I, I think, you know, there's other companies that are gouging people on that, like that vanity, that um, prestige and whatnot, and they're getting a better profit margin, but I'm just looking to actually make it a sustainable business. So I'm hoping to bring my retail price down over time, but I, you know, I, I'm at a point of necessity, whereas I think a lot of other companies are capitalizing on the popularity of this trend and, and people's willingness to pay for and whatever value that they see in it, which I think it's cool, you know, with whatever your business is. And if people are, see the value in it, man, you know, good for you. That's really cool. I dig it. Curtis, you yeah. did excellent. Three for three as a self-proclaimed gringo hey. for hot foods. Well done, my friend. Thanks, man. I love it. Yeah, that was fun. Uh, just geeking out is super selfish for me. I don't know if anybody else cares, but I love learning about interesting people doing interesting shit so appreciate hey. that all right let's get back to some people love the conversation about about dad uh give us somebody on the professional side that really had an impact on you maybe early on in the career who is somebody that you'd like to take an opportunity to acknowledge i mean i'd have to say that that chef mika from the trinity grill and last i knew he was working in south carolina i don't even know where the guy is but if it weren't for him, I wouldn't have wanted to become a chef, possibly. I wouldn't have known that the Culinary Institute of America in New York is like the best culinary school in the country and one of the best in the world. So without that guy, I would, that was the seed to my career. I, you know, I really appreciate having, a, having had the opportunity to, to meet him and talk with him. What's his full name? Uh, you know, the funny thing is I don't know his last name. I just know his name's Mika. Just chef is his first name and mika is his middle name okay um i i bet my dad would know but it's just uh you know he's a guy that i knew through my childhood um and it just uh, you know it was the seed but i mean that was probably one of the biggest people i could say to 
to forming my passion that I have. Give us some memories. I, I want to set the table for people. Oh, sure. I, I want another 15 year old listening to this going, I know a chef like that. And to put themselves in a position to siphon every bit of inspiration, knowledge, whatever it is that you got out of that. I want somebody listening to go, I want that for myself or I want to be that for other people. That's really a big goal that we have is to create roadmaps for how we create relationships and inspire each other across the industry. So give us a little bit of that from your perspective of Chef sure. Mika. So, I mean, the, to paint the picture, um, I would sit at the bar of this restaurant and it was one of those old school bars uh, with the armrest and then white and black checkered tile floor. And I'd sit there and eat with my dad. They had the French fried lobster dish and they had uh, I, I, the salmon, teriyaki salmon dish. It was very out of the 90s, but we'd sit there and eat. And at the end of service, we'd still be sitting there hanging out because my dad would be chatting up with all his buddies who were the bartenders and servers and managers. And Mika would come out and sit on the end of the bar, which is the side we always sat on. And a lot of times he'd come out and bring out like a Graminier or chocolate souffle for just me um, because he knew I had this, this interest in food. And over time he would show me more about like, tell me about how the souffle was made or say, you know, come back in the kitchen, I'll show you something or, um, you know, show me the pass and, and kind of like the, the line and the heat and see, I'd see the flames and just seeing that as a, a young kid, like how much action there is to it. It was really raw and really, rugged and and these guys are like dirty and they're wearing bandanas and like it looked cool it was you know it was a pirate ship and i'm a kid and i, I wanted to be on that pirate ship so and i can't the funny thing is i don't think i've ever worn a bandana in a kitchen but <laughs> but i liked it when i was a kid um, i mean now kurt curtis you have to get miso hot bandanas it's it is an absolute must from this moment that's already in the works so, yes. Yeah, band miso hot. It's actually the logo of it is really friendly to bandanas. So yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna be doing that pretty soon. And you're gonna be wearing a bandana. I I feel like you need the signature version of it, right? When we're talking about the uh, creating the boutique, is you need Chef Mika signature embroidered onto it because his restaurant oh, inspired yeah. it. Like, I come on, those here he is then. <laughs> the, uh, now this is the goal of the show honestly it's one of the challenges that i always set for, for guests is i want us to be challenged to remember the humans that have had an impact on us throughout and yeah. so often it's like god this one guy who was a line cook who was that pirate who just took me under his wing. he's like listen kid here's the deal and you'll never forget that because they took a moment and they you know hazed the shit out of you or whatever it was oh, made yeah. you go made you go get the bacon stretcher or you know the mayonnaise extruder or whatever geeky thing that it sticks with you and just acknowledging those people so i think it's important so any opportunity i have to push somebody to do something that recognizes and acknowledges those people yeah. i'm all about it like i could curtis if yeah. you have a bandana of miso hot with a little embroidered chef mika signature on it it literally would be the culmination of every reason that I started this podcast. <laughs> That's so cool. Well, so now the, the, the gauntlet is thrown, my friend. 
There's actually another uh, another guy that might even be fitting for that. That was a, a chef of mine on my internship in culinary school, and uh, his name was Matt Dibble. His name still is Matt Dibble, I think. Um, but he he's still he's still cooking. He's out in New York. Um, but he gave me the nickname Future when I was working there because I, I kept saving his ass because he, I don't know, wasn't paying attention to things or drinking too much on the job, something like that. But I remember one time I had been given the opportunity to run this line for the Cape Cod Jazz Festival. And it was just a line that I was running by myself for that singular event. And I called him to tell him that all these like chicken mango or what were they, lop, uh, mango lobster quesadillas, they'd all stuck together. And I, I didn't have more stuff to make new ones. And I called him and I, I was, cause he was in the main kitchen, I'm in the satellite kitchen. And I was like, what do I do? And he said, figure it the fuck out. And he hung up and I was, it hit me. I was like, okay, I'm going to take the top of one of these quesadillas off and put the, the two bottoms together. And it worked, but I, you know, I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, figure it out. And like everything in the industry, no matter what you're doing as a chef, like you always just have to figure it out and you always can, if you just calm the fuck down and do it. And that, that just always really stuck with me. So what a valuable lesson. And (laughs) I love it because it's the best and worst advice you could ever give like he, right. he, he gave you what you needed because he empowered you in that moment and it worked for you and it's also like it's like well that's not actually advice yet it really is it's yeah. it's the polarizing it's fact of being uh one of the island of misfit toy band of rebel pirates like there's there's such strength to it and it's such a weak approach as well. I, I love the polarization of it. So I appreciate that story. Yeah. All right. The most important part of this show, our opportunity to continue to acknowledge, acknowledge, acknowledge others and to give a shout out to one of our unsung hospitality heroes. Tell us who that is for you that you'd like to give a little bit of recognition to their impact on you and the industry as a whole. Well, that I think would be um, to Dave Kenny with uh, Caveman Chefs. I think that guy has worked his tail off to do something special for the industry and something that not necessarily everybody wants to do, which is create, you know, chefs don't like modifiers, right? And this guy has created a company where it's only modifiers. Everybody has a very particular diet and they provide meals for people with very specific diets and it's kind of a noble thing that he's done i mean i think there's you know sure there's more noble charitable things but these are people that don't necessarily have a solution and maybe they don't know how to cook for themselves or just don't want to because it's so complicated and this guy's he's crushing it i mean he's been doing it for quite a while now and the patience and humility and just good personality of the guy he's he's super funny and and fun to be around and um, I worked with them for a while when they were in, in their start before some other things with my career picked up. And uh, it was just really fun to be a part of the beginning of what they were doing and see that they're still doing it and that Dave is still still pushing to to make a difference for people. I hear you. and I, The word that popped into my head was flexibility. A lot of times we're so rigid. And yeah. you made a point earlier of the connection when somebody gets to enjoy your food. 
when you're in the kitchen a lot of times, you just, the only thing you know of guests, they're nameless, faceless assholes who send back food and have weird requests, right? right. I think when you actually get to connect and see them and see the joy and see that you know, they're humans, I think it creates that level of connectivity that I think we crave and seek and, and I think is valuable. The flexibility is hard. Because you're like, no, this is the dish. There are no substitutions. There are no modifiers yet to build around that. So talk about that a little bit. You alluded yeah. to the f- a little bit of flexibility. Totally. And now somebody like Dave is doing it at the f- core of his business. Give us yeah. a little bit of, of maybe how that is a skill we need to work on as well, chefs. I, I mean, in my own personal uh, career as a private chef and now to athletes and to older folks that have different dietary needs it's the it's the core of what i do is create a i create menus and meal plans to exactly what somebody's needs are you know i don't know if we've even brought it up but i've been cooking for von miller for a few seasons and we take it down to his micros his macros his uh, his caloric intake when he's bringing uh, these different macros in when he needs certain carbs and protein throughout the day based on what his workout regimen is in the off season or during the season or his recovery for his muscles all that it matters so much and for him and and that's open my eyes like you know that's that's him because he's so specialized but why not be flexible like that for other people because we are all what we eat and our experience in life is based on what we're putting into ourselves and to be the best version of ourselves, really how we eat matters. Uh, I mean, when you eat like shit, you feel like shit. And so helping people to eat better, it is a very personal thing. And the thing is everybody grew up on different food. So if you can take what people like and make it what they need as well, that is, that is something special. And that's what I strive to do. And I think that all chefs should focus on, you know, what their customers' wants and needs are, not what their personal wants are as a chef to create. I mean, it depends though. If you're the chef that is just creating, if you're creating art, that's one thing. You know, you go to a three Michelin star restaurant and you're, you're not asking for the salt and pepper shaker or asking for, you know, that bisque to be made without onion because, you know, whatever you know that's just not going to happen but i think for the everyday chef to the more flexible we can be the better we can be for our clients the better our clients are going to be for us and it's a real it's it's a it's a real changing world out there as far as what people want you're not going to get rid of people who are gluten-free and vegan you need to embrace them and learn how to to make them happy and how to you know, find ways that you enjoy cooking that food because otherwise you're, I think you're in the wrong business. We're in the, we're in the, somebody told me one time we're in the business. We're not in the business of feeding people. We're in the business of making people happy. We're in the pleasure business and creating memories. And if you're not doing that, leave, get out because you're wasting everybody's time by not being a part of that mentality. Yeah. It's great to hear that Dave is, working so diligently and putting himself in an uncomfortable position for a chef a lot of times as the foundation of his business 
yeah, and been- love hearing that that is something that really resonates with you and that you're adopting and pushing yourself a little bit as well in your endeavors. So, so yeah. that's great, great to hear. I'm excited to talk to Dave and oh, yeah. especially with a, a name like Caveman Chefs. It's just it's a great name and a very zeitgeist, very a get on top of a, a, a trend and be able to have it be something that's meaningful and thoughtful. I am all about all of those things. All right, let's take a moment to do your acceptance speech up on stage. You got 27 seconds before the music comes up. Rattle off some names. Give us some more people that you'd like to thank, like to acknowledge who are just important, that matter. I have to thank my dad for always believing in me and giving me the opportunities that he did. And then my good friend, Dan Gullickson, for working with me over the past decade. Kevin Taylor for believing in me and giving me the opportunity to be a personal chef. And then people that are mentors to me now, Zach Johnson, uh, Aaron Wagner, Amy Bittner, and Kasha McLeod, two amazing women that are doing huge things for this world outside of the food industry, but have been absolutely paramount in, in what I've been doing in the past few years. So all of those people really mean a lot to me. All about people which goes right into a quote that you gave us, which I love. People confuse me. Food doesn't. From the one and only Bourdain. Tell us what that quote really means to you. Well, uh, you know, Bourdain's always been a big, a big motivator for me. And when he passed away, that was a big deal. And uh, I've always lived by some quotes of his, but that was one that that it always struck me. And, and then for my birthday two years ago, uh, which is just a few months after he had passed, my girlfriend got me some custom Sharpies made with that quote on them. And she made, she made six of them two years ago and I'm on my fourth right now. I've, I've made them last. And you know, as a, as a chef, Sharpies disappear pretty quickly. So to have four Sharpies over two years, these mean a lot. And that, that quote means a lot to me. Those Sharpies now are almost like, don't touch my knives. Don't touch my Sharpie. Uh-huh. I, and I know my Sharpie's different because mine has a quote. Yours doesn't. <laughs> like it. Yeah. All right. One last words to live by mantra. Take out in the world. Make it a better place for all of us crazy pirates in this industry. If you've reached the top, it's your new bottom. There's always room to keep climbing. You know, I, I, don't, I don't even know where I found it. It might have been on Instagram, but when I saw it, it, it hit me hard because, I, you know, I've, I've been fortunate to have some success in my career, but whether it's high school, college, uh, as a line cook, whenever you hit a ceiling, there's always that room to break through and keep going. But it's really easy to get to a point in this career where we feel stuck and like we don't know what we should be doing next. But if you just think of the ceiling as a new floor, then you're in a new room and you can look around you with a clearer mind and think, what am I going to do next? What's going to make me even happier? What impact can I have on people that's better? How can I be better, do more? There's always room to keep chasing those things, to be better and do better, do more. Curtis Bell, great talking with you, my friend. Appreciate you being on the show. Thanks for having me on. I'm really honored to be on it. Cheers. And we're back, everybody, talking with Dave Kenny. Dave, before we get into your relationship with Curtis a little bit, we'd like to start with a little origin story. Tell us where you're from originally. I am from uh, Montville, Connecticut. Small town, just outside of New London, kind of on the Thames River. And my family grew up there in New London area. My grandfather actually moved there in the early 1900s uh, to collect a debt 
from an Italian, ended up purchasing a farm while he was there. He went back to Holland, gathered his family, and then uh, went back. So my grandmother was born there in 1914. And so we, we kind of have like a, a, a lineage there. And, you know, if you're in town in New London, Connecticut, you probably know of uh, the Vercades uh, in some way, shape or form. And they were botanists. Um, so they grew plants. Uh, first people to put plants in pots uh, on the East Coast. So a lineage of farming. Ooh, I like it. We, we're going gonna, yeah. we're gonna to dig deep into that. I also like that we're just a debt from an Italian. That's going to be a whole story when we do your episode. I'm excited about that. Tell us your first job in the industry. Where did this start for you? I worked at a place called Giovanni's, and I worked at another place. I'm trying to recall the, the, the name of it. Um, there was Oakdale Pizza at the top of the hill, and then John Yanni. Oh, Yanni's place. There you go. Um, Yanni's place. And she, his wife, John's wife, taught me all of like the basic kitchen skills. Like how to pour sauce from one container to the next. How to mop the floor, you know, all of that jazz. And uh, those are skills that I still use today and teach other people, which is sort of comical. And I used to be the worst employee like I would uh, go swimming at the uh, the dam is what we called it. We'd go jump off the rope swing and totally no call, no show for work. But, you know, they were cool. So um, that was my first uh, culinary job. And the love from it came from my mom, of course. Like the first time I cleaned my room appropriately, my mom gave me cookie cutters and a rolling pin. And I would stand on the stool and, you know, my mom would, give me all the recipes and we work through them together. If I wanted to eat chocolate, she'd be like, okay, let's make some fudge. Or if I wanted to eat ice cream, we'd have to make the ice cream. And I like that mopping the floors is something you remember as being a fundamental skill because man, is that important in a restaurant? It's, oh. it's fun, fun to sear foie gras. Oh, it's not sure. as fun to mop the floor, but equally as important. I honestly, now it's like, yeah, now it's like my zen. If it's time to mop, then that means it's almost time to go. And that laugh, right, she used to stand right over my shoulder and she'd be like, flip the mop, you know, this way, this way, flip the mop, this way, this way, flip the mop, this way, this way, rinse the mop. So now it's like my zen. It was like the first thing I ever did in the kitchen. And it's the thing that I kind of enjoy in a sick way because uh, the day's almost over. And it's super easy and, you know, it's my zen. It's my happy place, mopping. When you're a dishwasher, you want to be a cook. When you're a cook, you want to be a sous chef, sous chef, 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 owner. When you're an owner, you just want to wash dishes again. So I yeah, feel yeah, you yeah, for sure. 100%. It was like you never wanted to shuck another fava bean. And at a certain point, you're like, all I want to do right now is shuck some fava beans. Tell us just a teaser about caveman chefs. Uh, Curtis talked about loving how you were all about being so accommodating at the core of it to finicky eaters to diets so give us your perspective on why caveman chefs is important to you yeah i'll give you the broad stroke started as a dishwasher essentially um and then you know worked my way up through the ranks but all of that being in the back of the house a lot of kind of overbearing chefs uh mean people helped 
shape, you know, who I was at that point. And I went to work in the front of the house when I was down in Florida and it reshaped my thought process. Um, I got to meet people and experience uh, their experience. And I was like, wow, people have different needs and people um, are really enjoying this. So in the kitchen, I would do it um, and put out the best product I could and hope that people enjoyed it. And then I got to see the other side where people actually were enjoying it and how much it meant to them. And so when I created Caveman, I wanted to, you know, bring that level of service to our, you know, to our business. So our customers to me are those customers and I realize how important they are. And I realize that they have individual needs um, you know, like no two cars are the same, no two people are the same. So they all have different needs. So I want to accommodate as many of those needs as I can while, you know, still um, sticking with our philosophy. So as long as they fit within our gluten-free, grain-free, sugar-free, soy-free um, philosophy, then we can accommodate them. And there's a whole host of people out there with different dietary needs like autoimmune protocol or uh, gastrointestinal issues. Um, keto is all the rage right now. So you name it, as long as it fits within our philosophy, we'll accommodate those people. And I think that's part of creating a service that um, benefits people and the collective. Uh, I'm with you a hundred percent. It's interesting how, being a father of two now has like reframed some of my thinking front of house, definitely to your point, reshaped a lot of the way that I think about our guests. And, uh, and my wife is very heavy. She's a certified doula, very big into just health and wellness, taking care of our two sons. And so we, we do things like I make big batches of, uh, of stock of bone broth or tomato sauce and stuff. And, and she'll actually take them and, and give them to neighbors or sell them to friends or whatever, just, just trying to bring health and wellness and thoughtfulness to like a community. So I yeah. am with you hundred percent. That's been a big shift for us, even in the last year. So I'm, I'm, I'm appreciating what you're saying. All right. right let's talk I, about... I was like, I was just like taught hatred by, uh, you know, like my previous chefs. And going to the front of the house, it was like this eye-opening experience. Like, why are we hating these people? They're here supporting us and loving us. So that, that is a, um, something I try to instill in our staff and try to change culturally, like, you know, within our business and outside of that. You know, like, that culture of, like, the dictator chef, I think, should be, like, put to bed forever could not agree more all right let's talk about our buddy curtis mr curtis bell tell us maybe uh early memories that you have of, of curtis or a couple times you guys got to cook together and we love isms on this show so any funny stories any ticks so, as a chef that he might have give it to us i'm gonna give it uh, this is a long story i'm gonna try and cut it as short as i can but um my very first day in colorado hold on let me let me start over so my friend and I decided we were going to start a food truck. I lived in uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. He lived out here. He was in the military. 
And um, I'd, I was working in the grass-fed meat business. He was, you know, as I said, in the military. So he discovered the CrossFit community um, through the military. I discovered the CrossFit community and paleo community via the grass-fed meat industry. So we were like, let's put our heads together and, you know, create something awesome. So we decided to create a food truck. And I bought the truck in Miami. And if you've seen the movie Chef, that is a complete and total farce. It's a fun movie to watch, but the reality is much, much different. So I bought the truck in Miami. I drove it back to Fort Lauderdale with no brakes, standard. Um, we put it on a, on a flatbed trailer after we cleaned all the grit and grime out of it uh, to Tulsa, Oklahoma. My buddy's dad drove it out here. He made it about 300 miles before he blew the engine, turned around, drove it back, uh, or towed it back, put a new engine in it, and then drove it back. And at that time, it was in 2012, um, there was no restaurants down in Rhino, like zero. So we were like one of a few food trucks that would, you know, frequent that area. And although we would have liked to go outside that area, we really couldn't because the food truck was such a piece, you know? Uh, so anyway, our very first event that we did was at a voodoo uh, playhouse. And my wife was at, my now wife was in the audience uh, as one of the uh, people doing the tasting. So I met her, her best friend was Curtis. So, uh, after like the whole summer, she and I finally hit it off and I'd come back and visit and Curtis was, you know, helping her out and she was staying with him. So that's kind of how our relationship started. Um, as time went on, you know, like I would uh, have a catering dinner or, you know, needed some space to make sausage or something like that. So Curtis and I have had uh, a lot of late nights in the kitchen, you know, playing around, making sausage, doing things like that. And, uh, you know, those inevitably led to, you know, doing some late night four wheeling, you know, things of that nature uh, in Lakewood. He's just a great dude that's always supported me, you know, even though I was an out of towner uh, since back in the day. And I, honestly, I owe him a portion of my success. So. Yeah, why is that camaraderie so fundamental in people in the hospitality industry? It's, it's so clear that we always just are trying to surround ourselves with, with people. And sometimes, to your point, there's lots of dictatorships and toxic people. Yet we're always still trying to create community within the kitchen and within our restaurants or within our businesses. And why is that so important? And why somebody like Curtis was such an such instant fit, the two of you? I think it's kind of funny, like, no matter how wonderful of a service we provide to the community, I feel like we're always the low man on the totem pole. So I feel like creating a community around our service and supporting each other is really important as far as like building each other up, creating like a successful environment, profitable and successful environment for each other. Dave, the work that you're doing, the thinking that you have, I think your ethos is clearly well-defined and something much needed. Dave, thanks for being on the show. Hey, thanks so much. Appreciate your time. Cheers.
Thanks for listening to the Best Served Podcast. Subscribe to our show and connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Tune in next week to discover more unsung hospitality heroes.